Welcome to the Ruby Book Club podcast, where we read an hour of a Ruby book each week and dissect it with you. I'm Saran, developer and founder of Code Newbie. I'm Nadia, developer and director at Ignition Works. So we're currently reading Confident Ruby by Avdi Grimm. And today we're going to discuss sections 4.8 and 4.9, which cover defining conversion functions and replacing string typing with classes. And remember to follow us on Twitter at Ruby Book Club and check out rubybookclub.com to follow along. So I hear you've got a story for us today, Nadia. I do. It's not as happy as your one from a couple of weeks ago. Uh-oh. So just the other day at work, I had a case where I needed a controller, which needed to be able to handle a parameter called minutes. And I didn't want any random input to be allowed as the parameter was going to be converted into an integer. Okay. And so I, I, my pair was away, so I did a little bit by myself. And my approach was to check the string using a regex to see that it didn't contain any non-digit characters. So, um, and if it didn't, then I would call 2i on it. So Theo comes along looks at the code and says, well, rather than calling this regex, what's another way that we can do this? And Theo is your pair? Yes, exactly. He runs Ignition Works with me. And so he said, what's another way you can handle this transformation? And I was like, hmm, not sure. I sat there for a while. And then he started asking questions to try and help me get to the answer that he had in his mind. We had a bit of a conversation about it. And then he says, okay, what about this? And so he takes the part of the code where I fetch the minutes parameter and he wraps it in the integer conversion function. So I was gutted (laughs) that I didn't spot that by myself because we were talking about that just the other week on the podcast and I'd read it and I was so upset with myself. I was like, how did I not spot this? And so I say, well, I guess we never use it. So it just didn't click. And then Theo says, no, Nadia, we use this more than 2i in our code base. Uh, And he did a quick search and we had 10 instances of 2i and 19 instances of the integer conversion function. So sad times, but I guess it's just one of those things. And and Theo put it in perspective for me. He said, you know, he'd recently been skiing and he said, well, you know, when you're learning to ski on day one, they'll tell you to watch how you're bending on your knees. And maybe on day two, they'll add on another thing about how you use your ski sticks. I don't know what the actual word is, but (laughs) I think that's right. Skiing Skiing sticks, sticks, whatever. But, and and by day three, you'll learn something else. You're still meant to learn, remember what you learned on day one, but it's likely that because you're focusing on what you've just been taught on day three and still trying to keep on all the other stuff, you forget a few things. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. I want to end on a positive note and say that we're learning a lot of things and there'll be times when you don't spot certain things um that you think you should know and you shouldn't beat yourself up Mm -hmm. about it you should just these are all cases that will help you eventually reinforce these things and be more like attuned to spot them later yeah and i think it also goes to show that it's one thing to learn the concept you know it's one thing to read about and discuss it but actually putting it into practice you know there's kind of a step that you need to to be better at that you know that's like a, like it's another level it's another stage and so you know I think we do a really good job of reading and discussing and making sure we understand but the next thing that we both have to do is find a way to practice it and to you know what I mean like like get in the mindset of looking out for those situations and actually using it so that when we're on the job and we're building our own products it becomes very obvious exactly well thank you for sharing that I love when the real world and the podcast world collide It's awesome. So let's get started with 4.8, which is define conversion functions. So I want to start by just reading the opening quote, uh, which I really, really like. I think for this section and a couple of the other upcoming ones, it starts with an opening quote. And this one says, the fewer demands an object makes, the easier it is to use. If an object can accommodate many different kinds of objects that might be provided as helpers, it makes fewer demands about the exact kinds of objects it needs around it to perform its responsibilities. And that was from Rebecca Wurst-Brock and Alan McKean from, I assume, the book Object Design. And I really like that because one of the things that this book has 
really highlighted to me is this difference between what an object is and how it behaves. And when you're accommodating different objects, if you can be a little bit more flexible um, about what the object really is and pay more attention to how it behaves and how it responds, then things are a lot easier and happier. And to me, like, that's just a really good rule for life yes. as well, right? <laughs> like, paying attention to how people treat you and what they do, not so much on, you know, what they look like or where they're from. It just, like, it just mirrors my world philosophy, which I really appreciate. The synopsis on this chapter was about how you can define an idempotent conversion function which is then applied to any incoming objects. Um, and the example we're going to be looking at is defining a point conversion method, which gives you back a point object when it's given pairs of integers or two element arrays or particularly specially formatted strings as inputs. Yeah, and the indication for this, you know, kind of when you might want to use it is when you have a public API that accepts lots of different types of inputs, but really on the inside, you want to make sure that you have a single type that you've created that you have a lot of control over. So in the example that you mentioned with this point method, that's your own devising. That's the thing that you get to really control. Exactly. And, you know, Avdi says that the rationale behind all of this is that you can spend less time worrying about what exactly is coming into your methods and more time thinking about the business logic. So you've got a base starting point of, at this point, I'm now dealing with point objects. You don't need to worry about what came before. You know, you've now got points that you're working with. Mm -hmm. That sounds like fun. I think I would much rather worry about business logic than input uncertainty. So excited to dig in. So when we talk about creating this conversion method, we have two rules. It says that this method should be concise, since we're going to call it a lot, and it should be idem idempotent. Am I saying that right? I think there are many ways that people say this word. I, I like how you say it. You you make it sound really smart. Oh, why, thank you. I feel like when I say it, I sound like an idiot. Idempotent. <laughs> Not at all. Idempotent. Not at all. I say idempotent, but... Idempotent. Idempotent. <laughs> I do that right? Is that how I sound? <laughs> yes. But I do know a couple of people who say idempotent. Don't know where they got that from. No. Don't know where they got oh. that from. <laughs> That's not right. That's definitely wrong. Okay, that word. Um, and I think it was the last episode where you gave us a really, really great recap or, or rundown on what that word means and kind of the math, the mathematical context around it. Do you want to give us like a one-liner on what that word means again? Yeah, so essentially you can call a function many times and you'll get the same output each time given the same inputs yes and so here another thing that's interesting to note is uh i think it was last episode we talked about conversion functions like kernel array kernel path name and the weird thing about it at least to me kind of the, the weird visual thing about it was that it was camel cased and so it starts with a capital letter and in this example our conversion method is also going to do the same right because the idea is that we want to treat it in just the same way as the other kernel methods are we're sort of dressing it in the same clothes so it looks the same and so we're going to expect it to behave in a similar way and the last thing that it says before we really get into what that method looks like is it says that the method is going to be defined in a module it, it actually introduces this new thing called module function which i hadn't seen before i looked at that and i went oh man it's another thing that i should have known what this meant but then avdi explains it thank god <laughs> and helps me out a bit so i'm very thankful to about that. Right, so I was going to ask you about that because I don't recall using it and I've created modules before. I was wondering whether I'd been missing a trick. And so there's this method called module function and it does two things. So it marks all your following methods as private and it also makes the methods available as a singleton method. And now I had to do a bit of research again <laughs> on singleton methods. It was one of those things that I'd heard a few times and researched now and again, but if someone had asked me to say succinctly what it was, I would have struggled. So I don't know where you were on that. No, I was in the exact same place. I was like, oh Lord, I hope not it can help me out with this one. <laughs> so singleton methods, interlude. But this is a much briefer one than the mathematical one last week. But essentially, they are methods that are only available for a specific object or a specific instance, for example. So let's say you have a class called cake. 
Ooh, I yeah. like this and you're gonna make an instance of that cake called carrot. No, that was the wrong. No, one. it has to be no. chocolate. <laughs> no, because Aww. then what you're gonna do is you're gonna you're gonna define a method called carrot dot tasty question mark. And what is this method gonna return? False. No, no. What? It's gonna return true. Ah. So. But now the, here's the interesting bit on the singleton method. So you, if you call carrot.tasty, you're going to get true. But if you were to call to tasty, you'd get false. So that method tasty, you've only defined on the carrot instance. So it's a singleton method. And there's this little extra interesting bit that I found, which is where does that method live, carrot.tasty? It actually lives on a meta class of the object because it doesn't live on the cake class so it lives on this meta class of carrots and any subsequent singleton methods that you define live on this meta class so you know when you think about uh, sending a message to an object actually if a meta class exists that's what's checked first before the actual class and then we go along the normal inheritance hierarchy so that was a little tidbit that i found interesting yeah so when i looked it up that's basically the same information i found as well but the thing that i guess i didn't really have a great answer to was why do we need that in this situation so maybe it'll help uh, to kind of lay out what the situation is first. So we have our module graphics, and then under that we have our module conversions. And so as we talked about, this is a conversion method. So we have a method called point, and that's really the, the main meat of this module conversions. And it's under that module conversions that we have the module function. So in this situation where we have this method called point, why do we care about the singleton methods part? So I had to do a bit of thinking around this to, to check that I understood why it was important. And the point is that you can now call conversions.point and you don't need to include the whole conversions module. You can access that function as a method on conversions, uh -huh. but you don't need to include conversions like you typically do in a module. And so this is interesting because like, I said, I've defined modules before, but I've never used module function. Normally when I define modules in code I've written, I then go and include that whole module somewhere. And I've never had a situation where I've thought, ooh, I just need this one method from this module. I don't want the whole module. But this is essentially what that, this allows you to do. It allows you to say, I just want the point method, the conversions.point method, i.e. the singleton mm -hmm. method. There are other conversions going on in the conversions module, but they don't interest me right now. Okay, so would I, because the module conversions is in the module graphics, would I have to include the module graphics to get to the conversions dot point? Because I'm wondering, because like right underneath it at the bottom of that page, it says, it gives you an example of how you might use this and it says include graphics and it says include graphics colon colon conversions. So what I'm guessing is that I don't have to include graphics colon colon conversions i would only have to do include graphics i think so too we'll have to try it actually mm -hmm. do you mind if we kind of try it right now well let's try it right now that's a good idea have you got a terminal open yes now i do great okay so i'm gonna do module graphics i'm gonna do module conversions and then i'm gonna do module function i'm gonna do def point with a capital p puts high and do end and end okay so now i'm not going to include anything mm -hmm. and i'm just going to do conversions dot point okay uninitialized constant conversions now i'm going to include just graphics and now i'm going to do conversions point and i get high okay so now i'm going to exit it and then i'm going to do it again and now I'm going to not have the module function and see what happens. And it should not work. It should not work if our understanding is correct. Yes. Conversions. So no module function, just going straight to def point. Puts high and and and. Okay, so now if we do conversions.point, it'll say nothing. Okay. Now if I include graphics and I do conversions point, it should still say nothing. Right. Great, it doesn't 
says nothing. Yay! So now, I know, it's all excited. But now if I do include graphics colon colon conversions. It should now work. Now it works. Yay! Our understanding is correct. We understand. Awesome. Okay, cool. So now we understand module function. Whoop, we can go home. (laughs) Mic drop and done. Okay. So that shows that if you do have module function, you'd have to include the overriding module, but you don't have to include all of the specific module where the module function is used. You can just call on the methods that you need. Mm -hmm. Yes, that makes it a lot easier to use the conversion methods that we defined. So in that actual conversion method, so the def point that we've been talking about, there is a case statement, and point takes in uh, you know arguments, and basically the way the case statement reads, it allows for the argument to be a point, to be an array, to be an integer, to be a string, and then if it's pretty much anything else, uh, it doesn't like it, and it says cannot convert to point, so it gives you a type error. And so by doing it this way, at least the first version of this, it gives you, you know, it allows you to take in certain types of inputs and, you know, it's able to deal with it well, but there's kind of a limit to the types of stuff that it can take. So we're sort of type checking and we're saying we can handle these four cases, but the principle that we always try and fulfill is this idea of how can we make our code more open to extension and to be a bit more flexible with the sort of things that it's going to be able to handle. And so Avdi says, well, let's look at the two array conversion protocol that we've discussed previously. And let's also look at defining a two point protocol so that other objects which have this method can be used by the point function. Exactly. Which goes back to the kind of the opening statement, right? Of not limiting input by type and you know what it looks like but more um, on how it behaves and so when we got to this part and he prefaces this by saying we want to be able to open it up for extension we want to be able to accept you know new possible things my immediate solution was okay i guess we're adding more you know more statements more conditionals to that Uh, and instead he kind of switches the focus from looking at their types and checking the objects to checking for their behavior and that's how we're able to really extend it and accept anybody into the the point party. Yeah, we like to be welcoming and inclusive. <laughs> but it's interesting because when I got to this part, I paused a second because I thought if I was developing this, when would I stop to think, right, I need now need to think about is this code open to extension? And really, you've always got to be thinking about this stuff. So, you know, I was thinking, do you do this up front or after you've sort of gone through the red green refactor cycle and I guess you know as someone who does a lot of test driven development that your tests sort of draw this out because you know when you write your specs you're going to be thinking okay now what type of cases do I want to handle if I get this how do I want my code to behave and I guess through that process that can help draw out code that is open for extension but it it, it rests on you sort of having a really comprehensive suite of tests that sort of ensure that you're looking at all these different angles. Yeah, I totally agree. And the other thing that I I think about as well when it comes to um, extensibility is I don't want to, how do I, how do I put this? I, I know that my tendency is definitely to think towards the future and to do a lot of future coding. And I'll think, but what if this happens? Mm -hmm. And I'll get so kind of caught up in all the different possible ways that this might go wrong or the different things that might happen that um, I spend, I I tend to spend a lot of time and energy on things that will never be used, will probably never happen. The feature might not even make it that long in production. You know what I mean? Uh, And so for me, my biggest um, you know, the biggest thing that I try to work on is to really focus on like, okay, what are the most likely outcomes? And realistically, you know, where we, wh- what are people most likely to do? Um, and if there comes a time when we realize, oh, well, a lot of people or a significant percentage of people are actually doing this other thing, or there's, there's too much, you know, t- too many um, errors coming from the fact that we're not ex- being more flexible, that's when I would go back and really focus on extensibility. Um, and so I'm always kind of trying to find that balance between uh, writing code that's just too brittle and too specific, 
but also not trying to account for every possible outcome and not moving forward on the parts of my code that I really do need to get done. And it was interesting, this idea about what is most pressing and what are your needs. So for example, I'm currently working on an API between a Rails app that Theo and I are working on and an iOS app that we're working on. And what's interesting there is I'll be thinking of certain cases and Theo will often say, well, we've got to strike a balance because actually this API, at least definitely for now, is only used internally. It's only used by us for the purposes of the mobile app. And so I'm coding in a way that's keeping that in mind. So not necessarily covering some cases where we know we control the inputs, but also making sure that later on, if this were to become a public API, it's not going to be a disaster to do that. (laughs) Yeah, you're not gonna have to rewrite everything. Exactly. We're still trying to keep to good practices for when we are building an API. So and we're also big believes in sort of leaving off decisions until you have to make them both in code, but also just in general in the process, because minimizing waste, trying to get your feedback loops shorter. And so like you said, not spending too much time trying to cover all these cases when they might never arise. Mm -hmm. Yep. And so in Avdi's, I guess the first refactor in this where we talk about extensibility, it's still a case statement, but instead of the case statement being only about the integer, the string, and checking the types, there's now two case statements. So I see that one, the the array type check has changed from the type check to checking to see if there is a two array method that the argument responds to, right? Because I think it was maybe a chapter or two, or a section or two sections ago, we talked about how there are array-like objects that aren't quite arrays, and by checking for um, response to the toArray method, we're opening it up to being a little bit more flexible with our inputs. Exactly, and we have another strand of the case statement where we check if the argument responds to to point. And so this means that as well as taking point objects, which will just return themselves for idempotent purposes, we can also take any other sort of objects which respond to the two point method. So this is all about adding these extra hooks for extension, which allow our conversion function to be more flexible. Mm-hmm. And so when we add that in, uh, we definitely get a little bit more flexibility. Our code, our method is a little bit longer, but I think that's okay. Uh, And then the interesting thing, or kind of like to me, the thing that stood out is there is a point struct in that conversion module as well. And when we have the two point, uh, or when we have the, the case where we check for the response to two point, we also add a method in that struct called two point where it returns self. Yeah, and so that is what enables the conversion function to be idempotent, because if you're passing in a point already, it's going to hit the case statement at the point at which it says, do you respond to two point? And then it's going to return itself. So you can keep calling a point conversion and a point, and you're always going to get that point back. Avdi's also included this idea of a pair class, which he's defined as another struct and put the method to array on to show us how say you had some other random class defined later on by someone else or by you your your point conversion method can also just handle this new point class because it has a to array function so he's trying to demonstrate the extensibility that we now have ah uh, okay got it just somewhere else in general so as long as it acts like an array then as far as our code is concerned we're going to treat it as such exactly so essentially we've got code that can respond to classes that aren't even defined yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he does another one with a class called flag, which has a two-point method. And because it has that two-point method defined in that class, uh, we can pass it into our point conversion method. And it's just fine because it has the um, the respond to that we're expecting. Yeah, so... It's been quite a cool chapter because I felt like it's really drawn together a lot of what we've been discussing in the last few episodes around conversion protocols, conversion functions, defining your own ones of each, and then combining them all together to create a nice little module that is very flexible and sits really well within the domain of the app that you're working on. For sure, yeah. And I think we're at the part of the book where we have 
enough of a foundation from the previous chapters that they're kind of starting to build off of one another and connect and that's really exciting to see yeah it is really cool and so I'm really looking forward to starting to spot these cases and hopefully this time's you know spot where I need to use this stuff to help me Mm -hmm. write you know better better code definitely so the last part of this section i'm gonna be very honest i didn't really get it um it's called lambdas as case conditions so earlier when we talked about it uh the case statement being accepting of different objects that respond to a specific method the way that that was defined in the code is by using a lambda And here, um, it talks about how case statements use the three equals operator to determine if a condition matches. Uh, And then, and this is the part where I think I kind of lost it, when it says, when we combine proc, hashtag, equal, 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 with case statements, we have a powerful tool for including arbitrary predicate expression among the case conditions. And that's the part where I was like, wait, what? What just happened? So did you understand that, Nadia? And if so, can you explain it to me? Yeah, so the first time I read it, I didn't understand it. And then I went back and I read it again and again. And I think what Avdi's trying to say here is actually rather simple. But it's the whole lambda notation, which always just looks kind of (laughs) complicated. And so what Avdi's saying is, when you have a case statement, it automatically calls equals 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 on what you pass it so for example you say case um when integer and what it's doing is it takes your argument that you've input and says args equals 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 integer and i think what avdi's saying is is when you use a proc proc has its own equals 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 method which calls the proc So he's defined a proc which checks whether a number is even. And so that's where you take the input and you do the modulo two and you check the remainder zero. And so then he says, well, then you could do even equals 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 four and you'll get true. So now if you have a case statement and you say when even, what it does is it takes, it is essentially the same as saying even equals 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 your input it calls that proc that you've defined and so what you can do is you've got sort of two layers here which is the layer of the case statement which checks um uh if a condition matches but then you've got you can define a more interesting condition which is within the proc you can put more logic which it check which it which is then executed when you get to that part of the case statement got you Okay, so you know the part that I totally missed? I totally missed the connection between the case statement example and then the even proc object example above it. Right. Like, I I totally missed that those two were connected. I was like, why are we putting some random string-based case statement? Okay, now that makes a lot of sense. Thank you for that. It's interesting because I actually, it took me a while to work out how they were connected. It seems really simple now, but... Yeah. Maybe that's the thing. Maybe that's it's just the, the layout. It's just the even. Yeah. yeah, I think like I just like ran, ran through that code and I was like, okay, so we have a bunch of strings, matching strings I don't get. And then I missed that that wasn't a string. That was actually a proc. The, um, the proc above. Yep. Okay. Cool. Thank you. This is why you have to talk things out. So glad you're here. And I think that just about sums up 4.8. It does indeed. Should we move on to 4.9? Let's do it. So 4.9 is talking about replacing string typing with classes. So I was personally very excited about this section because, you know, one of the most common inputs, maybe the most common input that we get from users is strings, right? It's like, it's all strings. And so I was really excited to see a section dedicated to just strings and how to deal with it and string typing and and what that was going to be about. So I was very, very excited about this. And this section also starts with two quotes. We get, we get double the fun. And I'm going to read the shorter one that I really liked. And it says, the string is a stark data structure, and everywhere it is passed, there is much duplication of process. It is a perfect vehicle for hiding information by Alan Perilous. Hopefully I'm saying that right. What did you think of that quote, Nadia? Well, I'd actually uh, highlighted it myself because it stuck out for me as well. But it's interesting, right? Because it's this idea that a string, it seems so simple, and we 
you know, we have them, like you said, it's what we mostly get from our users because, you know, if they're submitting forms or things like that, then it's always going to be in string format. And, you know, we may use them around, but actually it's got a lot of complexity in there once you start passing them around. And I just thought this was a rather poetic way of getting that across. It was beautiful, the perfect vehicle for hiding information. It just, it just sounds, it, it's poetry. It's exactly what you said. It's just poetry. I loved it. And I was also excited about this chapter too, because it was touching more on that domain-driven design stuff that I mentioned previously, and how we can make our code you know, start dealing with the concepts that non-technical people are using to discuss how they want the application to behave. So, Saron, how do we get those strings to stop hiding information? Oh man, we have a lot of steps to go through to get them to stop hiding stuff. So this is the the interesting thing about this section. I feel like this was one of the most refactor heavy sections we've read so far. I don't know if you felt the same way, but we started, and it was really funny because as I was reading this, you know, he would present a piece of code and I'd go, yeah, that looks great. And then the last thing it would say was, so you can see all the problems here. And, I'm like, oh. <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then we'd, you know, fix a thing and, and do our first refactor. And then I think, yeah, that looks great. And then it's, so clearly we have this other problem that just came up. And I'm like, damn it, Avdi. So uh, <laughs> this was very, very eye-opening. Uh, and it was just really interesting to to get to see, you know, when, when we look at other people's code, oftentimes we don't get to see the process and we don't get to see how they came up with stuff. And to me, the big question and the thing that I really want to learn from more senior developers is what is the thought process how did you get to the decision you know what what did you see that I don't see and in this section he breaks down this is what I see okay now let's fix this now this is what I see in a different sense now let's fix this now here's a new thing you know he he really pinpoints the the issues and helps me develop my own little tool set of things to look out for and indicators so that when I'm coding on my own, I know what to look for and what to pick up on. Yeah, 100%. And this is why it's been great that my whole coding career right now has basically been pairing, you know, after Pivotal and working with an ex-pivot as well. I have been fortunate to always have someone to sort of sit with. And it comes with its own costs, which, you know, we can discuss another time. But it is cool to be able to sit with someone more senior all the time and say and talk through that that process. So Avdi talks about how we're going to use polymorphism to help us handle getting the information out of these strings and of course again polymorphism heard it so many times but had to double check to get that succinct definition basically the simplest definition I've got is being able to send the same message to different objects and get different results. And I found a nice simple blog post on ThoughtBot's website about this, so we'll post the link to that. And it just covers some ways that you can achieve polymorphism, and that includes things like inheritance, duck typing, and the decorator design pattern. Nice. So in this example, we're dealing with traffic lights. And I I love this example so much because it's just a great reminder to me anyway that so many of the objects that we've grown up with and that are part of our everyday lives are coded. You know, like there's there's software behind so much of the stuff that we may not see as software, right? It goes beyond web apps and websites. So I just love this example of traffic lights and changing traffic lights as, um, as the example that we use for this. And also what was cool about it is if someone said code up a traffic light system, like just one set of traffic lights, you would think that's rather straightforward, right? You've got three colors, you've got red and then amber and then green. It's quite straightforward, but really, as Avdi goes to show, it can actually get quite complex if you're trying to design it properly. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's the thing, right? It's like, because that was my initial reaction to you, was like, man, this got complicated fast. And I think that when we talk about complex and complicated it sounds, it's, it leaves the impression that as a developer, it would be hard to understand. And really what he's done is he, we end up in a place where there's a bunch of different classes and they're working, you know, together in a different way. And it feels complex because of all the iterations it took for us to get there. But I feel like as a developer coming in on that traffic light project, it probably makes a lot more sense than the very first version of that draft. Right, exactly. And again, it's because you've missed those initial steps. 
And so you just see the nice clean code at the end. So in this class traffic light, let's just kind of go through some of the main features that it has. So it has a couple different methods. The first one is change to and accepts an argument called state. And so the idea of this is, you know, you're at green and you're going to change to yellow. And then the next method it has is signal. And here we have a case statement. And it says that when the, you know, when there's, when that state that we passed in is a string stop, so we're dealing with string inputs, then we're going to turn on lamp red. When it's caution, we're going to turn on lamp yellow and ring a warning bell. When it's proceed, then we're going to turn on lamp green. So pretty obvious stuff, right? When it, when it, when it tells us one thing, then we're going to give it the correct response back. And so that defines a method called turn on lamp, which as you might imagine, turns on a lamp depending on what color you gave it. And then there's also a next state, right? So as soon as we, uh, as soon as it says stop, then the next thing that's going to come up is to go, right? To proceed. When it's caution, the next thing that we expect is going to be stop. And when it's proceed, the next thing that we expect is going to be caution. And then the last method that it talks about is something called ring warning bell, which only happens in caution. And it just puts the string ring, 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 which I like to think is also going to be a sound effect at some point when we inevitably make real traffic lights out of this class. Do traffic lights in America often make noise? Not that I know of. No, not in the UK. So I don't know where Abdi was when he wrote this chapter. It's the traffic lights of Avdi land. That's what it is. So here, uh, so yeah, I looked at this and I thought, yeah, that looks great. You know, that feels very logical. Uh, and then, you know, immediately at the bottom of the page, it says, can you spot any problems with this code? And I was like, oh, man. Um, so what was your, before we kind of get into what Avdi spotted, did you see any red flags with this class? I mean, I, I was primed to think that there was an issue with the strings. And I knew it was going to be something to do with input. But, you know, when it said, can you spot any problems? I was, I knew it didn't feel right, um, but I wouldn't have been able to succinctly say, oh yes, if someone does this, then that, if someone does this, then that, like I would have been able to reel them off. Yeah. So, so tell me about that. Tell me about that feeling that you had where something was kind of off. What, what made you feel that way? I don't know whether it has anything to do with the fact that we're reading a chapter of a book that has hinted that dealing with string inputs is dangerous and we've just had this the initial example but I could just sense this idea that it's saying when stop when caution with strings you just know that that could come in so many different forms so on the website I'm currently working with now for example users have to input a username which has to fit certain criteria in the sense of it's not an email address and because we don't want them to be able to put their email address in. And also, there they can't be any spaces at the end. I mean, we could do more to strip those off. But I just know that there's a whole nightmare of things with input. And so as soon as I see string inputs, I'm just thinking, that's no good. Yeah, yeah, there were, there were two things. Of course, once I was prompted to go find all the issues with this, I thought, one, we're not really sanitizing our input at all. So I'm thinking, well, what if like the S in stop was capital or misspelled or, you know, just kind of, you know, just isn't exactly the way that we want because the way the case statement reads, we're counting on it being all lowercase and, you know, obviously spelled correctly. And then the second thing that I thought about was just the fact that it was case statements uh, and it just kind of, you know, because I feel like I've been trained that case statements are probably not the right tool and if you're using them maybe we should think about something different so while I didn't have an initial you know here's what we should have done I had a feeling that we would try to move away from case statements yes I have that particularly with case statements as well and what's interesting is you know being a newer developer and reading a lot of things um, like Avdi's book and Sandy's book and then going into the workplace I often find myself saying to the people I'm working with ooh, that doesn't feel right, or ooh, I'm not sure that's a good idea. And I'm always questioned and said, well, what would you rather do instead? And often I don't have an immediate answer because it might be a case that I haven't had enough time to think about it or I haven't had the experience to have tried a range of things already. But I'm very like attuned, I think, to things that are, are not quite right. Yes, I have that exact same, same I guess, 
skill. I don't know what to call that, but yeah, that that thing. <laughs> I think it's the start, right? It's it's knowing enough to know when it's wrong, but not knowing quite enough or having the experience to know what's the right way to do it. So I'm definitely the same way. So Avdi then starts to say, "Well, how can we start to deal with these issues?" So someone could put in uppercase string and they wouldn't be able to deal with it or what if someone inputs a a symbol and so one thing that we can do is to just say right you can only have stop proceed and caution all as lowercase otherwise raise an argument error and that was the other thing right because in the case statement there was never an else clause which when he called it out, I thought, oh, yeah, I should have seen that, you know, but there's no else clause. So what that means is that it'll fail, but no one will ever know about it, right? So you'll end up with nil and kind of not really know what went wrong or where it went wrong and it'll silently fail, which is not a good thing. And also the other interesting thing that I didn't think about was Avdi says, well, also, if you restrict the arguments, that doesn't keep you from accidentally misspelling the code. So right, you right. could write it and put like... um stow with no p on the end of stop and everything's fine and you deploy that code and then it still doesn't work because people are typing in stop and your code nope it's it's not stow so you can't have that and then i've highlighted the next bit after that where avdi says besides something doesn't feel right about this code at all all those case statements and that's exactly that that feeling that i get all the time where it's like hmm these decisions I'm making don't feel right. I can sense I'm not heading in a good mm-hmm. place right now. And and I termed um, GDD, which is gut-driven development. So it's like, ooh, my, my, my gut's telling me this is not quite right. I need to stop. Although if I felt followed it religiously, I might not write any code. Yeah. Ever. <laughs> Sometimes you got to tell the gut to shut up. But yes, in general, that is very helpful. Yeah, and and it's funny because uh, when he brought up the issue of what happens when you type something wrong, I thought, there's a solution for that? (laughs) What what magic are you going to give me so that I don't make a mistake? So yeah, and the next question that he asked after the all those case statements statement was, what if we represented the states of the traffic light as a special kind of object instead? Which got me just incredibly excited right away. And it's funny because on the um on the PDF that is the the first line on the page and the rest of the page is blank, so it's just like a very dramatic moment in this book because the code is coming. Yeah, because the code is coming. The code is coming. <laughs> yes, and so he shows us the code, and here we still have the class traffic light. We have a state struct so here i'm trying to decide what parts of this are new and what parts of this are the same so okay so looking at this new class what are some things that are new here so now he's defined the state class which is a struct and it simply has the method 2s on it which returns the name which you've passed in when you initialize the struct and then he defines three valid states which is a constant an array of state objects so he's got stop caution and proceed and he initializes those state objects with the strings stop caution and proceed so i i love that because i i think i would have thought to have some type of constant that held you know stop caution proceed you know something like that but the part that i don't think i would have gotten to is the fact that those other constants the stop caution and proceed are actually state objects made from the struct and it's funny i'm thinking so right now on the code to be site we're redoing our homepage, which is badly needed and we're adding a section for all of our in-person meetups that we're doing around the u.s and i'm thinking of you know ways that we might be able to incorporate this because we have kind of our valid meetup groups that we have that you know aren't going to change for a while and i've been thinking about okay well how do i do that is it just you know strings in an array called valid group names you know how what does that look like and i'm gonna see if i can use something like this where there is a constant called atlanta meetup but really that constant is um, an object called meetupgroup.new that's you know it's a struct and it takes in a couple things so this is giving me lots of lots of good ideas oh that's so awesome you'll have to feedback if you manage to incorporate this stuff into the code newbies website definitely 
And so, yeah, as you were saying, there's the valid states, which are really just objects that are defined a little bit earlier in our traffic light. And so what that changes in the rest of our code is all those places where we were matching with a string, we no longer have to match with a string, right? In our case statement, instead of having the string that was, you know, that said stop, now we are matching with the all caps, you know, that says stop, which is really just a state object. And that really cleans things up in terms of removing all those string matches and replacing them with state objects that we've defined internally and we have a lot more control over. But one problem you're going to notice is that when we want to access those constants, we now have to preface that with traffic light namespace. And so other parts of the code has become more verbose. He sort of makes a note saying, well, when we go over the next iteration, that's something that we're going to want to improve. And that earlier uh, that earlier thing that he said where, you know, what happens if as the developer, you make your own typo, uh, the, f- the way that we're able to prevent that or, or make that, you know, harder to happen is that we're using constants instead of strings. And when we misspell a constant, Ruby will definitely let you know. And I thought, oh my God, that's the magic trick. This is amazing. So that was very exciting. Yeah. And so Avdi says that why don't we start moving some concepts into the state objects themselves? And so he takes this idea of next state and says, shouldn't that live within a state object? So a state object has a name, but it also knows what its next state is going to be. That that sounds like a reasonable bit of information. And so with that, he passes in both the name and the next state. And that definitely, like you said, you know, makes it makes it just feel better, right? Like the state should know about its own self and also its kind of upcoming thing, which is based on what it is. So again, moving towards a more object-oriented design and kind of having the right objects know about the right things. And so then Avdi looks at other ways that we can move things into the state object and he comes to the signal method. And now we've got our great warning bell, which is going to cause an issue because for the caution, you also ring this bell, but that doesn't happen in any of the other cases. So how can we incorporate signal into our state objects? And so now we're taking a whole totally different approach and we're going to create stop caution and proceed as subclasses of state. Whoa, sounds like a big refactor, doesn't it? Yep. Huge thing, like Avdi is switching it all up. (laughs) And again, just so you understand the visual experience of reading this book, the last statement says, instead of making them instances, we make them subclasses, and then there's a very long blank page for dramatic effect, and then the code is coming. The code is coming. Sadly, I don't have the code is coming effect because the Kindle version is all like sort of one continuous sort of thing. One page. So got to get the PDF. It's okay. I will fill you in on all of the dramatic moments of this book. Thank you very much. So now we have these subclasses, which enables us to define signal and caution slightly differently to the other states. So for signal in the caution class, we call super. So it behaves as all of the other states do. But then we have traffic light dot ring warning bell. So we can add customization. Yeah, and I love this because here our state struct graduated to a full-blown class. Yes. Which is which is very nice for it. Yeah, I was like, wait a minute, where should just a struct? And now it's its own class and it has its 2s method, its name method, and as you mentioned, the signal method, which is really what prompted this shift. And then Avdi's like, so this is all looking good. There's not much left in traffic light now. It's got next state and signal. But when we call traffic light methods, the ones that take a state, it's now not very cool because you've got to do traffic light as a namespace and then caution.new, for example, if we want to access a state. So what does Avdi do? So here he does something that to me looked a little funny and I'd love to break it down with you a little bit more. But he has a, that, I guess it's that, is it a conversion yes, method? Yes, it like? it's a conversion. <laughs> it's a conversion function. It's a conversion function, yeah, because it's got that capital S. And I was like, "Hey, you look familiar. I just I just read about you." So he has a conversion function called state, and it's def state, and it takes in a state argument. And in there, we have a case statement. And so we're looking at it, and we're saying when state then state, which is. <laughs> 
which doesn't really make sense when I read it out loud. Um, the first state is capital. And uh, then it's the, then I guess we're just returning with the, the argument itself. Otherwise, we're doing self.class.constantgetState.2s.capitalize.new. So we probably want to break that part out a little bit more. So in the example of how we would actually use this, we would initialize a new traffic light and we just call it light. And then on light, we would call a change to. And the other big difference with this conversion function is that it's also a private method. So the only way that we're really calling it is by calling the change to. And so in this example, we're passing in a symbol caution. So that's our state. And by doing that, we're creating, uh, we're passing that into our function, our conversion function state. And so here, this is the part that is confusing to me when it says like one state, then state. We're matching the caution in this example with what? So it's saying when it's a state class, when your argument is a state class, then just return what you've what you've given it. But since we've passed in the symbol, we are not going to to fall on that part of the case statement. We are going to transform that caution into a caution state. So we're going to take the class um, uh, traffic light, get the constant, so it'll be traffic light, and then it's going to be change caution to a string, capitalize it, and then call a new one. So it's going to be basically traffic light. A caution object. A caution object, exactly, and initialize a new one. So when would the, and that makes a lot of sense, when would the when state, then state, when would that ever come into effect? I'm trying to think of like the scenario when we would pass in state. Well, it means you've already got a state object. So it's a, it goes back to that idempotency stuff we spoke about before. So this, having that there means that if we were to have been passed in a state already, then it's just going to return you the state again. So you don't need to worry about it breaking or not knowing how to handle a state because it's the state conversion method. That is something I don't think I've ever thought about. It's going to be a new a new thing that I have to remember to consider. The the idea of like item, I can't say that word, item potent, potent? Yes. Item potent. <laughs> you say it in a very funny way. <laughs> that word. That's just not really something I've thought about too much when I code. So I'm going to have to remember to think about it moving forward. And this is, I'm going to try to remember this specific example because I think it'll help a lot. Great. Okay, so by using that, and I just love the fact that the conversion function came back into play uh, with this example, just, you know, pulling it all in. When we do it this way, what that means is we don't have that really, really long kind of ugly call. Uh, we can just go straight to light dot change to pass in a symbol and we're done. And just visually, it looks a lot cleaner. It's a lot more concise and it's a lot easier to read. That brings us to the conclusion of this chapter where Avdi says, let's reflect back on the pain points and it's a good thing to think when you're coding and we spoke about having that feeling that feeling that things aren't going quite right so it's like what's the pain point find the pain eliminate the pain and so in this case we had those repetitive case statements that we just knew weren't quite right they were all switching on the same variable and this idea that it was just very easy to pass in some nonsense for this state variable. And so those pain points helped us to introduce a new concept of this idea of a traffic light state and, ex and, and, and let some knowledge about what that means live within that new object. And so not only do we have the domain that's well-defined, if a traffic light needs to have extra responsibilities, we've got the right place to do that. And again, it's this obvious extension point, which this refactoring has given us. So I have a, a general question for you. When you see the possibility of having to create a new class, do you often use a struct as the intermediary step before making it into a full class? A struct is one of those things that when I see other developers bring it up, I say to myself, oh, I would have never done that. Right, so, yeah. Again, like this is what's so awesome about this book is that it's just opening my eyes to like all these things that's at your disposal in Ruby and this idea of, so it goes back to this idea of you don't need to do a full bone class if you just need a couple of methods and a little lightweight, little lightweight structure just to pass some information around. And it's, it's like you said, you said, oh, look, traffic lights now like 
grown up to be a class mm-hmm. and so it was this idea that early on we didn't know quite what it would look like and what we needed we knew we just needed this 2s method and so i guess the the, the learning here is when you feel like there's something that you want to abstract out or a new domain, if it's very lightweight to start with, then maybe a struct is what you need to play around. And if it needs to grow up and graduate into a normal class, then again, I think you're going to feel the pain and know that it's time. So it's the idea of I've got pain. What's the simplest thing I can do to get rid of this pain? Will a struct solve it? Yes. Okay, I'll use a struct as long as a struct won't cause any other pain elsewhere. And when a struct is becoming unwieldy or it's like, okay, I'm going to need to add a couple more methods to this thing, then maybe it's time for it to be a class. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that. I'm going to start thinking about it that way too because my immediate reaction, you know, when I notice that an object is doing too much is to move it out and make it its own class. Uh, But I'm going to see if there are places where it might make sense to do like a baby class, right? To start it off as a struct and see how that feels and then graduate it up. I wonder how that'll, I think it'll make my coding feel a lot more fluid and lightweight. Um, So I'm interested to see how that works. Cool. Well, let us know how you get on with that. Mm Mm-hmm. So one of the things that uh, he ends with that I really liked is he says, when we look deeper, we may discover a distinct concept struggling to emerge, which is, again, like a very poetic way of, of talking about code in these classes. And so in this example that we went through with the traffic lights, what were some of the concepts that we saw emerge that weren't really there in the very beginning? So I think it was this idea of what does it mean to be a state a traffic light state so initially we just had this thing stop proceed like that is just those were just strings initially they didn't mean anything apart from having the letters s-t-o-p and it became painful when we had to say we had to codify all this knowledge of okay when we see this string stop then uh, the next string is caution and it's just all these strings and and it goes back to that quote at the beginning where Actually, it was hiding a lot of information, which was this idea of, no, we're not talking about a string here. We're talking about this behavior of traffic lights, which you can go to any, I think I was going to say, you can go to any country, to be honest. I've been to some European countries in America and... um, and so, you know, there, there are probably countries that have different conventions, but there's it's a general sort of understanding of how traffic lights behave, which is you see red, you know that you can't walk yet and cars are most likely to be passing. But it's natural to think that when you see red, the next thing you're going to see is either green, so you can go, or at least a preparation to go. And that's like a normal behavior. And and so what Avdi's saying here is that we were trying to put all that information in these strings and strings don't really hold the information what do objects classes and so it it was really cool that sort of process of looking at strings and saying oh actually this is quite difficult there's pain here and so I must be trying to put too much information on this string too much too much of a burden Right. And if you think about where the code started and where it ended, it really represents that journey because in the beginning, because the states were just strings and were hiding all this information, the only class we had was traffic light. Like the focus was on this idea of a traffic light. And by the end of this refactoring, I think we went through maybe three, four refactors, the traffic light class only has one public method and one private method. And then our state class has a bunch of subclasses, and that's really where the meat of things really are are located. And so you get to see just visually in terms of how much information we ended up keeping in the traffic light and how much of it we moved out to other places. We got to see the shift away from the traffic light being the main objects really being center stage and realizing that it's actually the state that's the star and that there are these three different states that we really need to take more seriously. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, And there's like an interesting just sort of final note that Avdi tags on the end, which would be useful to for our listeners, um, which is that it's he spent the whole chapter talking about strings. But he says that the symbol class is essentially interchangeable in this case. So for the purposes of this discussion, every time we say string, we could have also said symbol. Very good point. So I guess that's about it for four point. Is it four point nine? Four point nine? Yeah, that's about it. Four point nine. That was awesome. How did you feel about that section? Oh, I really enjoyed it. I really liked it because 
it's something that you see a lot and and I think what's cool about it is that it gets to what's cool about Ruby which is this idea that it's very readable and this is really taking that into its own where you can come to someone can come to this application and say aha this is a traffic light thing and it's got a traffic light is this so talking about broader concepts rather than trying to sort of procedurally go through and go aha so when when stop this when go then this it's more about someone can look at the code and say this is what a traffic light is this is what a stop sign is that's really cool. Yes, definitely. What about you? Yeah, I really liked it. It was one of those things where I definitely needed to talk through the refactoring because this is the type of, I think it's been a general trend. It's the kind of book where all the information is technically there, but it's not broken down to the level that, um, you know, I feel like I can really get it in the first read. It really takes for me a little bit of dissecting some back and forth, some conversation to really get to to internalize a lot of the connections. Um, so seeing the refactoring and the thought process was super helpful, but really talking it through with you is really what made some of the the big key points at home for me. Oh, that's so good. Mm-hmm. So next week, we're going to do some more good stuff. But in the meantime, we wanted to ask you a question. So between defining conversion functions and replacing string typing with classes, which one are you excited about using next? And is there a project that you plan on implementing some of these really awesome patterns um, into? So if there is, please let us know. Please tweet at us at Ruby Book Club and tell us how you plan to use the takeaways from this episode in your next project. See you next week. Cheerio.